This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify and Klaviyo customers the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 75 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Jacek Pruss, the co-founder and CEO of Kulina. Based in San Francisco, Kulina is a food technology company with a mission to recreate nutrient-rich, tasty, and sustainable seafood from plants, starting with raw tuna. In this episode, Jacek shares with us his journey from growing up in Houston, Texas with aspirations to become an astronaut, to studying entrepreneurship at Acton, to working at a plant-based incubator in Berlin, to starting Kulina after watching the Earthlings documentary. He talks with us about the seasonalities of fundraising and what it was like to go through a thousand iterations and tastings of raw tuna before landing on the perfect one. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe or you can text me 310-510-6044. That's 310-510-6044 to enter to win free products and get special discounts from some of your favorite brands. They're my favorite too. So shoot me a text, say hi, or tell me your favorite brand, and we'll try to hook you up. I'm so excited to hear from you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Jacek, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building Kuliana. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Lee. Excited to be here and tell you all about it. Definitely. So you are from Texas. You grew up as a meat eater and now you started this plant-based company. Tell me about a little bit about your background growing up and how did you turn plant-based? Yeah, it was definitely not the orthodox journey, I'll say. I remember I was uh, just turning 21 and instead of going on a college rampage and getting drunk like most people do when they turn 21. I actually um, saw some documentaries and one of them was called Earthlings. And it just showed me the inside of a factory farm. And it's one of the most difficult things I think I've ever sat through, but it was really profound. Um, I just kind of got struck by it to see that this was happening on such a large level. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like the worst horror movie you see because it's real and it's happening. Yeah. And, you know, billions of lives um, continuously. And that kind of, yeah, that that's what really set me and kind of shook me. Um, yeah. So I find it interesting 
Because people are like, oh yeah, there's billions of animals, but there's so many, that's why they need to die. And you're like, wait a minute, but we're the ones like making them reproduce at such an incredible speed and level that that's why there's billions, right? Yeah. <laughs> because we're eating that much. That's why. Right. Yeah. What do you, you, and with these movies, I'm the same, you know, these documentaries are pretty tough to watch sometimes, but I've always kind of taken the perspective of, I'd rather be, you know, knowing what's going on than kind of blind and ignorant to what's happening in the world would you but i understand also it's really hard to watch especially abuse on yeah. you know in a movie um what like i don't know what do you say to the people that kind of turn a blind eye you know i feel like i've had conversations before and they're like i can't oh yeah yeah i can't watch that right and you're like well okay well you know it's kind yeah. of like you want to live in the dark okay yeah yeah i mean it's a good Good, good point and question. I used to try to get people to watch it all the time. Um, mm. I think I, I pivoted away from that myself um, just because you can show people, you know, what, what's like behind the curtain. And mm. statistically, if you appeal to morality, 2% um, of people actually will change their behavior. Wow. It's a little like depressing, yeah, um, but it's crazy. also like, that's the curtain behind humanity. Then if that's right. like, a, like a decision-making process, then the strategy in which we want to implement change has to change too. And so I used to, you know, go around and like really talk to people to show those documentaries. And um, I think Cowspiracy was another good one that was less based on suffering, but just how animal agriculture is incredibly wasteful and um, the environmental impact it has. Um, but, you know, after doing that, I did that at Texas for like a year and a half, being an animal rights activist, being all over that stuff. And I realized the hit rate was really low. Most people just didn't change their behavior. Um, and so that's kind of why, you know, when people say they don't want to know, I just, I kind of get it. And I, and I, I don't use that strategy anymore. Mm -hmm. um, Though I think there needs to be people out there doing that because those people are the people who changed my mind. Um, but for the 98% of other people, you know, we kind of have to think about what really changes behavior is usually things that appeal more to the self. And that's things like, um, you know, convenience and well, with food specifically taste, something has to just taste awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yes. I'm going on a little bit of a tirade here. I got a no, lot it's good. It's good. I didn't know that 2% stat. That's really interesting. Um, that explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess a little bit about your childhood real quick. You know, were you entrepreneurial as a kid? Um, you know, I, I don't know, a little bit. Like I definitely swung at a few things from like 16 to 20, I had a bunch of different ideas of companies I wanted to start. I think some of them were like, one was like a lawn mowing company. Another one was a composting company. Mm -hmm. um, I remember I wanted to start a bar in college and I was like, wow, this is like this the college best job you know, ever. You know, it would have been so cool. Um, but to be honest, I think I just wasn't passionate enough about any of those things to actually put in the hard work. So um, yeah, it was more of kind of just a fun thing that I wanted to get into, but I never did. Yeah. So were you, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh yeah. It depends. Uh, I think when, you know, classic, when you're a kid being an astronaut, I think that was definitely on the top of the list. Is that a classic? Really? I never thought about that one. So it's like, I'm good. I don't oh, need to go up there. Come on. I thought like everybody wanted to do that. Um, 
Yeah, that was that was definitely up there for a while. Um, but then I was like, oh, that's like, I don't know, you really don't even spend that much time in space. And like, if you're lucky, you would just get out to orbit, you're not even gonna get to the moon. It's not like, you know, Star Trek or any of the games I played as a kid. So I was like, well, maybe that's not as cool as I thought. <laughs> the games inspired you wanting to be an astronaut? Yeah, I think so. I so I also grew up in Houston. I grew up right by NASA, um, which was really oh, cool. Like it. we like the neighborhood literally had people who were on like the cutting edge of where humanity is reached. You know, we're like right on the edge. It was so cool. I think that was really inspiring. I think I also like grew up uh, with an older brother and we really, uh, I remember reading Dune at the age of like nine or 10. I know they're coming out with that movie soon. So everyone's getting into that. But just the concepts of like, you know, how vast the universe is and how much there is to see were really, really fun and inspiring for me. So yeah, kind of funny. Started that way. And now I'm working on stuff to like very earthly food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to hear what your story is and how you came up with the idea. Um, you know, I know that you attended Acton School of Business. I actually heard a lot about that. I had a previous episode, I think it's episode 20 with um, Adele Archer from oh. Turnava. Yeah, as she uh, went to Acton and told me all mm -hmm. about it. It's a pretty incredible, I didn't know, experience. Um, so for those listening, if you want to know about Acton, tune into that episode. But um, so I know you got your Master's of Business there. Um, what kind of happened from there and how did you start? Kuliana. Yeah. Well, I, so I went to act in just an additional shout out because it's so awesome. I went there. I didn't even want to go to school any, any further after my undergrad. Um, but specifically to start a company on alternative protein. And so I was like, okay, if I need to learn all, you know, entrepreneurship that, you know, like that program was really good for it. Um, but anyways, afterwards, Afterwards, I um, I knew I wanted to be an all protein, um, and I I wanted to still start a company. I was looking at starting like a chicken nugget company at the time. I think it was 2017. Um, it was you know I didn't really have the network or the industry knowledge. It was really difficult. I was kind of operating in a silo in some regard in Texas, um, and I had applied to one job. Um, it was in the alternative protein space and I was confident I was going to get it. Like I knew everyone at the organization. I did not. There was a really good other candidate who's now a friend of mine who got that job. Um, so I ended up working construction and delivering food for seven months with an MBA, which was very humbling. Um, very humbling, but really a cool experience. Um, and I got kind of lucky. I went to a conference in Washington, D.C. It was an animal rights conference. Mm -hmm. um, I met some really, really cool people there. And specifically, um, Leah, she was from ProVeg Incubator. She um, she told me um, about this organization called ProVeg. And there she was like, hey, we're combining business and animal rights. And I was like, that's right up my alley. Um, and after that, I went to Germany to go do an internship there, um, which was pretty weird because I sold like all the stuff I had, which wasn't much. It was like a truck and a motorcycle um, and just packed up my suitcases, went for that internship over in, in Berlin. Um, and again, I got really lucky because as I got there, they just secured some funding to create an accelerator for alternative protein companies. And I was like, oh, wow, wow. pretty good timing. Yeah. It was really, really lucky. Um, and, and like Acton was a, um, you know, a school for entrepreneurs. 
that was kind of what the accelerator was supposed to be, right? Like that's like, we were designing it to support entrepreneurs. So I kind of, you know, pushed to help start that, um, you know, start that program up. And I got lucky because I had some friends in ProVeg and they were like, hey, this guy should do it. And yeah, I got to do that full time. Uh, I was the first full time member for that part of the company. And I learned a ton. It was really cool. It's like building a mini act and um, except I had way less experience. So um, yeah, pretty tough, but it was really fun. That's awesome. So you had this pro, you were working at ProVeg Incubator and did you get the idea for the company there? Yeah. So Kuliana had the idea, I think it was about after a year and a half of working at ProVeg, had the idea for Kuliana. Um, and it was really um, just seeing like alternative protein had not really like done so much in seafood at the time. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so I actually have to credit that to my ex-girlfriend. So she's the one who said, hey, like, check out seafood. And I was like, hey, that's a really good point. Like seafood isn't, isn't um, targeted very well. Yeah. Uh, well, and so. now the movie Seaspiracy is out on Netflix, oh. which I've seen, which is like, whoa, you yeah. know, it's like you, you know that it's bad until you see this and you're like, wow, it's actually really bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so your ex-girlfriend kind of brought this idea to you and, and then you were like, all right, actually you're right. Let me dive into this. What were some of the first steps um, that you did to kind of validate that this is really what you wanted to pursue and that there was a market for it? Yeah. So I'm kind of fortunate because there's a good organization uh, called Good Food Institute and they publish some cool stuff. And one of it, I think I still remember the paper name it was like a ocean of opportunity. And it talked about how, you know, seafood was neglected. It's obviously a huge food category. And what I really got from that too, was they also broke down the different kind of strategies you could use about what products to target. And they said, Hey, why not go for like high price items um, within food service? Because there you can kind of have some better unit economics. Um, and I thought that was really inspiring because then I was like, okay, you know what, I think tuna was the one that really stuck out. Like tuna was a product that you could sell for a relatively high price. Um, and so the business model kind of made sense in, the, in my mind. Um, but it was also really cool because I knew I wanted to work on a company in which we would innovate the technology around creating food products. Um, and what I mean by that is like targeting raw tuna was really kind of a cool product to go after because most uh, alternative meat products are um, created through the process of extrusion or high moisture extrusion. Um, there's other subsets of that where there's cuvette cells and um, uh, power heaters, kind of things that have some similar technology, but all of those create like cooked meat products. So mm -hmm. we're going for raw tuna. I was like, okay, we'll have to actually innovate on the process to create products. And I thought that was just really, um, really exciting for me. Sometimes I wish I was like a scientist because I think that stuff is like the coolest work. Okay. So you have this idea. You're like, I'm definitely going to go after raw tuna. Um, you know, going through that product development phase must be pretty intense. Can you kind of talk about what that was, what that's been like through product development? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, uh, it was pretty, you know, it's, yeah, that was a lot. Um, we actually tried a lot of different methods in the beginning. I remember at first, 
we um we thought of thinking like can you take like high protein algae and these different things and like you know just maybe run it on extrusion or some format of extrusion that might not use as much heat um and uh, and then another concept we had at the time was like you know more similar to what some of the like ocean hugger was one of the first companies that did like a, a tuna substitute and they did it with tomatoes and we thought maybe could we do it with like beets or something so we're just trying everything where we're mm-hmm. trying all these different ideas um and yeah that product development process was interesting because we had gone down two ways and one was this like you know almost like cliff bar looking high protein but like frankly really bad tasting like algae bar and the other was this beetroot that was like you know somewhat treated but just it was still vegetables like very much a kind of a vegan product and I um we had some pretty cool people who were ready to back us after just a few months and they were like you guys are going to be our like you know spearhead company of this new project we just need you to pitch this one investor and we flew to we flew to New York to the pitch of the Sylvester. We showed her these two products and, and, and just did not land at all. We looked <laughs> so unfocused. Like I remember, I had no money at the time because I was you know kind of working on a nonprofit and just total flop. Um, and yeah, that was that was pretty tough. I think that. that was, you mean so flop from flop from what perspective? Like all like the pitch was horrible, and so was the product, or just the product was really. I mean, bad? I think yeah, I think I probably I probably could have pitched better. Be, yeah, the product was like, it wasn't, you know, yeah, the product, it just, it was kind of all over the place showing two different ideas there. Um, it just really like identified how early stage we were. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was other challenges too, like around coordinating more of the meeting time. I think I just really also wasn't like, I didn't know how to pitch uh, properly. <laughs> so right. um, yeah, overall it was, it was pretty tough, but that was really good because in that, we kind of learned those two approaches weren't going to work for us. And we really pivoted to another one um, that's that we've been using for kind of our 1.0 products. Um, obviously it's been refined a lot since then, but that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was a good learning. It's painful, but necessary. So how many iterations have you had to go through to get to where you are now with your current product? Yeah, we're actually finalizing, um, our memo right now for our series a raise and we yeah i just saw it in there i think it was over a thousand so a thousand iterations yeah yeah i think this is one thing people don't really think about is like you know your lunch you out there everyone's like oh it looks so great but they don't even realize wow that took a thousand different iterations and tries and testing and taste testing i mean you must be exhausted from trying to taste different types of tuna like plant-based tuna right Yeah, I'm not eating that much plant-based tuna right now. I mean, I'm eating it all the time, but I, maybe I'm just not swallowing at this point. Um, <laughs> that's, it's just kind of funny. It's like what you're supposed to do in a taste test. You're not supposed to swallow the product. I was like, oh, okay. Um, it's like wine. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, so yeah, tried definitely a lot. Um, but fortunately, that's, you know, more of my co-founder has done a lot more of the heavy lifting and product development. Um, I've definitely been involved, but... Uh, she's really, you know, with her background, she's been a food technologist for like over 17 years and um, her and the R&D team have, have, have been carrying it a lot more. I did a little bit more in the beginning, but yeah, I just do more of the talking. 
for for the thousand over a thousand iterations how many how long did that take are we talking like three years or what yeah i mean so i would say we started in march of 2019 so what is that two two years now two two years and a couple months so we'll get right back to our show but first a word from our sponsor Malomo is on a mission to help brands create lasting relationships with their customers. Did you know that the average customer tracks their shipments around four to five times per order? And during Black Friday or Cyber Monday, that can sometimes double? That's a lot. Why not use that time with excited customers to drive sales and build your brand with a tool like Malomo? With Malomo, you can use branded shipment emails and order tracking pages to drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash CEO. That's G-O-M-A. L-O-M-O dot com slash stairway to CEO. Not yeah. bad. I mean, I was pro- like kind of expecting like five years, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. to kind of do something like a raw tuna really good. I imagine yeah. takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So- and I think it's a good, so that's an interesting point you're bringing up. Cause like, if you look at impossible foods, it took them five years and mm-hmm. about $80 million to create their first commercial exactly. product. Yeah. So yeah, I think we've had, we had a bit of help because we're, the space has been evolving a little bit more. Mm. Um, so we didn't have to start completely from the ground up, but um, right. yeah, it's, yeah, usually like creating, that's the, one of the hardest parts about food is like creating good products. Usually takes money. Otherwise you're not right. really like, it either takes money or you're really not innovating that much. Right. <laughs> or you're just super smart. Sorry. I should, I should not try to make it that black or white. Um I tend to do that. So don't worry about it. <laughs> I tend to make things look black and white. I feel like a lot, but in terms of fundraising, what, talk to me about fundraising. Um, you know, how much have you raised so far and what has that process been like? I know you guys have investors like the founder of Reddit. Um, you were in Y Combinator. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your experience at YC and uh, just fundraising in general. Yeah, fundraising has been a really fun journey. Um, so it started, I would say, m- the most with that trip I told you out in July um, in 2019 in New York, which was, again, pretty big flop. So that sucked. But we, um, you know, that year we got uh, a pretty good angel who um, they were, they, they kind of believed in us. He was actually a, an, um, a mentor at the ProVeg Incubator. So I built a relationship for a while. He's kind of kind of saw the work I did there. And through their um, group, group Good Seed Ventures, they gave us like a $25,000 check. And that was like our first investment. And that was cool. Um, we did it on a convertible note. Yeah. They gave us enough, like a little bit more money to do more prototypes. And with that, we were actually able to get a prototype that definitely was not a finished product, but it looked pretty good. And I remember we gave that prototype to a pretty kick-ass like entrepreneur who then was investing in the space. And he was like, wow. Like, this is like, this is good. And they offered us like, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, we ended up not taking it because we think the model just wasn't the right fit. Um, but they were really cool. And they were, I think, you know, we could have gone that route and probably would have been accelerated with our company development. Um, 
And we were just going to raise like a priced round pretty aggressively. That was in like December of 2019. We totally screwed up there. Like we didn't know anything about the fact that like, hey, like people stop, like they're doing the tail end of their investment rounds. Like what's interesting about VC fundraising and it has these like ebbs and flows and timings. You probably yes. know this, but we didn't know that. And, you know, we like started raising like beginning of December is like really bad. Oh God. It's just like, no. Why don't, you, like, why don't we take a second to talk about that? Because that's really important. These ebbs and flows of like the best times to fundraise during the year. Can you kind of tell me how you see it? Because I this isn't actually something we've kind of discussed specifically on the show. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to hear your take on it. Sure. I am by no means an authority, but just from experience, what I have seen is often like right now, like August, a lot of times kind of has this gap where a lot of VCs are taking breaks and then they start yep. ramping up again and like, early September, October, November, and then they're closing everything off like early December, mid-December, it's all closed. And then they like reopen and remerge kind of like in January, mid-January. It's kind of like vacation time. I think that's like what's going on there. And then yeah. I think from January on there or like a little bit later, I've seen a lot of them start reinvesting. And the thing is, it's weird. It's like, there's no calendar anywhere talking about this. It's just right. like, hey, this is just kind of how it's moving and the feedback you get. Yeah. Um, and yeah, besides that, I really, I really don't know, but that's what I've experienced. Um, right. That there's definitely these like lulls and highs. And that is really important because a lot of investors are follows, right? Like mm -hmm. they don't lead rounds. And that means that investing is a, in very, in a very large sense, a game of momentum. Yes, it is. Less, like, it's like, a, it's like a stock market. Like it's not always rational, like it's emotional, it's supply and demand. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, investors are super smart people. It's just also that like investing is really hard. And usually to do like a very thorough diligence to understand if a company within its industry is going to succeed, is the time right? There's just so many variables that I think a lot of, you know, it's created this dynamic of um, momentum investing. And usually there's this kind of like pointing or like waiting for an authority investor. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, right. So they all kind of join arms and they're like, well, if you do it, then I will, you know, and it's kind of like this, they have their trusted kind of partners, right? Yeah. You're exactly right with this kind of seasonality of fundraising. Um, and it does affect the amount of time it will take you to close. Um, if people aren't vacation, it takes longer. And, you know, like you said, towards the end of the year, they've kind of allocated all that year's funds, you know, by, by November, right? Like, or kind of the reverse could be helpful where they have to write the checks. They have to get them written before the end of the year. And so they're looking to invest actually quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of more the the latter because in my experience, what I've seen, like the best times to fundraise are kind of that like January to June, like get your, your raise kind of closed before the summer. Mm -hmm. Or if you're going to raise again, like you have to raise in September and you better hope you get closed by November. <laughs> like, no, or like mid-October preferably because it gets a little... I don't know. People go away for Thanksgiving. They go away for the holidays in December. I mean, December is not even like a work month. I feel like, you know, it's like, what, <laughs> what, what do people do in December? Right. Yeah. yeah. My birthday's in December. That's all. I mean. <laughs> oh yeah. Christmas. Oh yeah. New Year's. Yeah. Right. I know. It's so true. It's, that's funny. Yeah. It's cool to hear from your perspective. Yeah. Like summer, there's that summer lull too. Um, and yeah, back to that point, right? Like you're trusted. What that was really, I thought that was astute, like your trusted network, like, actually humans make so many decisions that way. Oh it's yeah. Nothing. It's like yeah. hiring. It's like career choices. It's even like dating, like so many things. It's like, 
who do you know? And does somebody I know know you or trust you? Yeah. Like we're incredibly like, I think that's like humanity's incredible tool is like, you know, alliances and like knowledge through others. And I'm I'm heavily a person like this. So I think it's uh it's quite reflective of us as human beings. And it's like we depend on our community. Right. No person is an island. I know you you guys are available in Erwan. I haven't had a chance to go down there and check it out. I'm really bummed out that I didn't get a chance before our call to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But where else can we find the product? And, you know, tell us more about it. Sure. Yeah. So we're in Erwan, like you said. You can actually order it online through Erwan too. So, but you're in San Francisco, is that right? Los Angeles. Oh, wait. Okay. Well then you can literally, yeah, you can just order it to your place. Um, you can let, also let us know. We literally have like a, like a team now who's like sending product to people who want to try it. Um, yeah. So you can get an air one. There's also a pokey chain we've been launching with. They're called pokey bar. So we've been launching with them. We did cool. like a nationwide launch, which has been really cool. Um, and then, yeah, we actually have an e-commerce partner and we plan to launch with them next month. So probably towards the tail end of that of next month, but that'll be fun. That's yeah. going to be like a direct to consumer approach, which is not how we've started. So we've started food service, like in the air one year, like it's in the sushi counter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this will be like a much less prepared version. And we want to use this kind of as like a place to get more feedback, to see how does a product perform when it's not already prepared in a sushi roller, poke bowl. Um, right. And also as a testing ground for retail products. So we have some pretty cool SKUs um, that we're excited to launch on there too. Um, some of them are going to be like a marinated pokey cube. Um, so somebody can just like open it and like pretty much eat it um, after thawing, of course, or like putting it into like a bowl. Um, and another one would be like a smoked salmon product. So it would be a cool nice. A smoked salmon. So yeah. how much does this product, this raw tuna product actually taste like tuna? How close do you think you guys have gotten in terms of accuracy? Yeah. Um, raw. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So like if you, we kind of use the impossible foods approach, like they put it in a burger, right? So like it works really well in like a poke bowl and a sushi roll. And usually like, unless you're specifically looking for it, you can't really, you can't really tell in those formats. Um, I think color wise where our colors are a little like too hued on the purple end right now. So we've actually um, rapidly changed that. Um, so it's got a better color close to tuna. Um, yeah. And then I think, you know, if you're going to eat it like completely outside of like, you know, just by itself, you're going to still be able to tell a difference. Um, but you know, it's a, a big part of its presentation and a big part of it is, um, are people looking for it? Cause I actually had, this was funny last year, last year. So the product was like, not even, um, you know, not nearly as good as it is now. I went to, um, Dolores park during the pandemic and I went with a bunch of pokey cubes and I put like a little bit of seasoning on them. And I went over to people and I was like, Hey, we're a new tuna company. Like, I want you to try our product. And I had my roommate recording these videos and almost everyone was like, yeah, this is good. Yeah, good product. Nice, nice. And I was like, yeah, what'd you think? They're like, yeah, it's good. It's like good tuna. And then I was like, "Um, yeah, like what if I told you it was plant-based? And then they were like, oh yeah, I mean, I guess I could tell now that I'm looking for it. So it's like, that's that's kind of a bit of, uh, I think a really good example of how it happens. Um, That's funny. What percentage of the people like thought it was real tuna? Well, so I didn't ever really ask that question. So I'm not, 
the way I presented it was that it is tuna. And then they just ate it and they didn't say like, well, this is plants. Like they, they were just like, okay. But then when I told them afterwards, if I told you it was plant-based, I would say probably most of them were like, yeah, I mean, I guess I could, I guess I could tell. Um, you should do one of those tests where it's like real tuna and then your tuna and see which one they like. Yeah. 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 I mean, so again, if you eat it like raw side by side, you're going to tell the difference. Like raw mm -hmm. tuna is, um, a, it has like almost no flavor. So that's really interesting. Yeah. We've actually had to like, um, I would say our product has like more flavor than raw tuna, um, which I actually think is like a benefit, right? Like sometimes I think we aim to be, we can be something similar to, but also better than a product. And the, the analogy that I yeah. heard that I really liked was like with Tesla, like they didn't try to just recreate gas cars. Like, yeah, they wanted to recreate the, the, the range. Right. But if you go into a Tesla now, like, and you get like, even like a model three, you can, or like some of the model S is like, you, you will drive faster than a Ferrari and a Lamborghini zero to 60. Like there's right. no, you the want front. it to be better than tuna. Like, exactly. Yeah. That's the game, right? Like we don't have to be exactly like tuna. Like we can actually just have, if you see like how people eat tuna, they usually put soy sauce or something on it. Yeah. And so we can just put flavor right into the product. Like yep. you eat it and it already has like a really deep umami flavor. Nice. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit of this fun game of in food, like innovating and making things better than. And at the same time, people like a, somewhat of a familiarity with food. And I mm. think that's what like a lot of companies and founders are trying to reconcile in the alternative protein space is like, how do you make it familiar? Yeah. But like you want to make it better. Um, yeah. So. That's really cool. I can't believe that I was reading the other day that the plant-based um, market is now over $13 billion. I think that's just insane. Mm. Um, and really exciting though. I mean, I'm plant-based and I'm I have been loving seeing the growth of all of these cool companies um, pop up. You know, I had the founder of Daring on the show. I'm such a big fan okay. of, of that product. They're at Costco now. I'm buying it all the time. <laughs> um, but you have some really incredible ingredients in your product as well. You've got the iron, pea protein, uh, beetroot, and you've got vitamin B12, omega-3s. It's stacked with some really healthy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and not I to mention the no mercury and the no uh, microplastics, which we all kind of forget about existing in our fish. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Right. It's kind of, it's, yeah. I think nutritional profile is huge. I mean, especially when it comes to like the kind of cognizant, cognizant eaters. Um, yeah. That was, that was one reason. So that was one of the reasons we in the very beginning wanted to use like algae as a, um, base like you know just like this protein algae protein was like oh it would taste exactly like fish and um yeah one thing that we're pretty happy about since you're bringing up nutrition is we have uh quite a lot of omega-3 dha in the product and that comes from algae oil so it's actually what makes fish kind of taste fishy um yeah. so it's ironic that it's plants that make you taste a fishy component um <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's the good old algae there and um, yeah, that omega-3 DHA is actually pretty cool because the body processes omega-3 DHA, obviously it has a lot of neural benefits, um, but the plant, often the other plant equivalent is omega-3 ALA, and it just doesn't process nearly the same way nor convert with the same benefits as omega-3 DHA. And I don't think this is like talked about that often, but like it's a pretty important and like, you know, health, you know, health promoting 
uh, ingredient. I think the challenge with, uh, with algae oil is it's a little bit more expensive and it's also uh, pretty difficult to work with. Like it's really easy for um, omega-3 DA, like that algae oil to get rancid or like because you didn't temp control it right or you maybe exposed it to, to too much heat. Um, and so, yeah, that's been a fun, like thing that we have in our product. And one of the reasons I like to eat it is like, oh, I'm like maybe getting smarter from this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Or at least I like to tell myself. Right. Getting some brain food in there too. It's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. how big is the team now? Uh, we are about 12. Yeah. And so what advice do you have around hiring? You know, hiring a team is, is pretty key into, you know, having a successful company. What are some of the lessons you've learned around hiring a great team? Nice. Uh, yeah. So actually this one was from Acton. I really, I really liked what they, they had this mantra is like hire slow, fire fast. Mm -hmm. I think that's really true. Like when it comes to hiring, it, 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 it should kind of take a while. And if it's not, then like maybe draw that process out. Um, just because I think those, obviously those are the people who really, they really build that company. Um, like you only do so much as a, you do a lot as a founder, but it's really that, that initial group of people who, you know, multiply that impact. Um, so yeah, some lessons I learned, I think it's great to meet someone in person. I know during COVID that's a little hard, but I think it's kind of important to get a feel, um, I think really trying to understand someone's motivations, which can be hard to unravel. Um, but really thinking, does this person, you know, I think a startup is pretty hard. And usually, um, you know, usually there's going to be some kind of pay hit. Um, obviously, like you can economically argue that the equity will make up for that. But often I think there has to be somewhat of a belief in what you're doing. Right. Um, yeah. So I think if that's, if that's, if, and some companies don't really have that and that's totally fine. Like this is going to be a kick-ass business model. Um, but if for our company mission is really important, I think mission alignment and having someone who kind of also is motivated by that has proven pretty true. Like when people believe in it, um, they just tend to work harder. They stick through the pain. So trying to unravel that and identify to somebody really care about that mission. Um, and that's difficult. I think one I really liked during the hiring process is like stepping away. If you're like trying to assess a, a candidate's skill set, is put them through like a, a work trial. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a little tricky sometimes, but because, you know, you don't want to be like having people do work and then using that work later, but really trying to understand the way a candidate thinks. Um, and one that I really liked, we did this for a chief of staff position was we actually did an act and case study. Uh, which is, you know, we, we'd like put them through a case study that was like, just to understand how does the candidate think? And I think we made a really good hire there because we were able to see like, wow, this person could take a bunch of ambiguous information, which is often a case study. And that's like a startup. There's tons of ambiguous, distracting shit out there yeah. and you have to process it and cater, like prioritize it and mm -hmm. then communicate it well to somebody else. Um, yeah. So I really liked that interview process. I thought that was really good. That's interesting. Yeah, that is a really valuable skill set to be able to be thrown a bunch of things. And like you said, just kind of like be able to interpret it, but also then communicate it to other people in a much simpler way and organize it and 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and I think um, it's a big part of what, like what an entrepreneur does, right? Like, yeah, you know, no, that's exactly where I was going at. I'm like, yeah, I remember, that's all. That's what I do, <laughs> right? And then right. it's and then it's like ideally what you could do is like you could hire a bunch of like entrepreneurs to come work for you. But the reality is like most of those people are just going to go off and do their own thing. It's like <laughs> finding this like person who believes in your mission and thinks like, hey, this is still big enough for me, um, mm-hmm. and has that capability, um, and really you know, always speaking to that person's, um, you know, speaking to that person's like values, like what do they want? I think that's been really cool is like developing people, like the people that work at Kuliana, a lot of them are just like, they're like smarter than me for sure. And like more experienced (laughs) than me. Well, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to hire people smarter than you. You know, you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. You're not going to get very far. True. Very true. Um, So yeah, I think really like supporting your team and helping them grow, um, you know, giving them a lot of, I think there's a really cool book, got a shout out to one of our incubator companies. Um, his name's Chris, Christopher Kong. He, he did a pretty cool tempeh company, but he, he showed me that book It's called drive by Daniel Pink. And he says like the three things that motivate people are, um, have you read that one? Yeah. Okay. Have, we go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. So it's like meaning autonomy and mastery. And so like, how do you speak to those three points for people all the time? And I think our company's lucky, like meaning is pretty prevalent through our company. Um, Autonomy comes down to an act of management. Um, And like, how do we give people autonomy yet keep people aligned? Because if we're not aligned, then we're just going to be screwed doing a bunch of random stuff. Um, And I think that comes down to really letting people make decisions. Like, and and, and frankly, if they're smarter than you and you hire them, like they probably should be just making the decisions. And you pretty pretty much come in there to like make sure that it's aligned and it's like quality controlled. Um, And then the mastery component's interesting because I guess, you know, that's like, are they challenged? Are they working on the things that they want to be developing? Um, Yeah. That's cool. So tell us about one of the most challenging moments you've had in building the company and how have you overcome it? Hmm. Challenging moments. Yeah. When did, when did shit really hit the fan and and was there a moment you thought it was all over? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the beginning was really hard. Um, so I remember when I, when I had that idea for Kuliana, um, well, you know, we, we worked, I worked with actually my old classmate from Acton. He's a really cool guy. His name is, uh, yeah, he, well, uh, whatever Swiss. Yeah. Maybe I'll send this. We'll send it to you later, but he's a um, really smart classmate. We were working on it together. Um, and I remember we then a couple months into it, um, we found like we met with Sonia, we were introduced to her and she came on board. I think a really hard moment was because, uh, Swiss was pretty integral to the company. Like he had been there practically since like a few weeks after having the idea when he decided to leave because he felt he was in San Francisco. He was on the West coast. I was in Berlin. Um, Sonia was in Barcelona. There was a lot of timing challenges. I think we were both very much CEO mentality. Um, and I think he's smarter than me. So he's probably just fed up with my dumbness. Um, when he left, that was really tough. I got to say, because I was like, wow, this sucks. Like, this is one of my best friends. And mm-hmm. like, frankly, we found a lot of the base of the company together. Um, and then having him leave was really hard. I think that was hard for Sonia as well, because we both really liked him. Um, and then just kind of reconciling, like, how are we going to move forward? Because, you know, the beginning is such a fragile time. And it's like, we didn't have any money then. 
Um, so yeah. I, I think that was hard because that was also not like that long after we also got kind of smashed on that trip to New York to pitch to that investor, like, <laughs> like a collapsing thing. It was like, I'd spent a bunch of money. Like I didn't have that much money. I like flew out to New York to pitch and it just totally, totally flopped. Um, and then, you know, him leaving. And then I know Sonia was really busy. I mean, she, you know, she was a pretty accomplished food scientist. There's a lot of people trying to like yank her into other projects and stuff. And I was like, Oh man, this was, that was really hard. And I think, <laughs> yeah, I think honestly leaning probably, you know, well, yeah, I mean, that was a question, right? When was it really hard? And how did you overcome it though? Like what, what kept you going? Is it really the passion for the space and wanting yeah, to, I yeah. think so ultimately, like it comes down to being, it comes back to like that moment and that feeling I had when I saw that documentary, um, was like, it felt like something that needs to be done. And yeah. then it becomes a lot less about you. Yeah. And that's really, really cool because your pain then matters less. And when your mm -hmm. pain matters less, you become more pain tolerant. And I think Elon Musk is really smart. And he talks about like, when you have a startup pain tolerance is one of the high, like the biggest things you need because you are just going to get hit in the face over and over again. So true. Um, because it's like, the reality is it's really complex. You have to iterate, you have to pivot your, your, most of your ideas, you know, some of them may prove out right, but a lot of the hypothesis will prove out wrong. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's having a strong, you know, a strong belief that something should be done. And yeah, when, when it's not about you and you just getting rich or you just building your own fame, because the funny thing about that is that is if that drives us and that self-importance drives us, then pain is magnified and becomes less bearable. Mm -hmm. So it's actually like, you know, forgetting yourself in a way that, you know, maybe that's not like the healthiest psychological thing. Like our executive coach might be like, my God, this is what he's doing this way. So psychologically ruined. Um, <laughs> Wait, but, you just said you have an executive coach. How's that going? And do you recommend it? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I haven't talked to too many other founders who have their own executive coach, but ours is really great. She helped, you know, us work through some conflict I mean, frankly, I think like they're kind of a therapist and, and, and I yeah. think everyone should have a therapist. Like, I don't right. care who you are. Like, you don't even like just living as a human. A therapist is great because it's like a live journal that is way better at processing. But as a founder, I mean, to have somebody, I mean, because you can't always, you can't always talk to your investors about things, right? You can't yeah. always talk to even your advisors who are stakeholders and shareholders. Right. You can't talk to your team because you don't want them to be worried. So then yeah. you end up, that's why they say it's so lonely at the top. So I always talk about a little bit on my shows, how it's important to kind of have this boat of people, like who would you put in your boat or in your tribe that help you in all different aspects of your life, like in business, have a, a executive coach to help you have someone maybe like my uncle has been a great mentor and kind of like emotional support in business that maybe yeah. an executive coach wouldn't be because that's more strategy and more strategic. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you kind of are like, who, where's the support system? You have to build your support system to get through life, to get through business, to get through parenthood, to get through, you know, maybe a lot of things. So um, I think executive coaching yeah. is highly underrated. Totally agree. The best analogy I heard too was like, if you look at professional athletes, like they have coaches, multiple yes. coaches, right? Yeah. And it's like, why aren't professional business people having coaches? Like, <laughs> like we should all have point. them. Yeah. Yes. So 100%. yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And I think it makes, it's a, it's a game changer. One of, one yeah. of my investors who I am actually really close with and feel fortunate that I can tell him a lot of the struggles because we had just had a good relationship already. 
um, he was like, yeah, I think it's super smart. And um, yeah, because we're all running marathons here. You know, like if you're a founder, you're running a marathon and you probably should get some coaching on like mm -hmm. keeping the sanity level yeah. healthy and everything else, right? Mm -hmm. Making sure you have everything you need. Yeah, and a lot of the best founders I know, like they're really good about that. Yeah. Like I think I'm I'm actually working on that all the time. Like I have yeah. this thing in my head where I'm like, I should be working. I should be doing more. Like people right. give you money. You need to like do everything. And then you start to realize, and I had like, you know, recognize I was like, wow, that like I just become incredibly inefficient when I'm mm. overworked. Like yeah. you actually start spinning your wheels. And that's what I realized in Acton too. I think one of the big lessons in Acton that wasn't talked about was like they give you literally like a hundred hours worth of work a week and they keep pushing you to do that. The reality is like you start to recognize that if you don't prioritize like your sleep and those other things, yeah. your, your work quality just drops tremendously and you make more mistakes. Yeah. And so the trick is actually, and my buddy Swiss is really good about this. And like my other founder friends like Nicholas Hartman, he founded a really good company called Fly Foods in Berlin. They're super good about taking care of themselves. And so they're smart. They yeah. Choices. And I think especially when you're like, you know, um, a founder, that's like a big part of your job is just making the right choices. Um, totally. You got to know when you've got to chill out, right. Or get more sleep. I mean, I I'm pretty sure I sent an email today and you know, when you say like moving you to BCC to spare your inbox, but you don't move them to BCC. <laughs> that's what I did today. And that means I need more sleep, <laughs> you know, like Right. you start making stupid mistakes like that and you get so annoyed at yourself that's when you're like okay thank god it's friday yeah. <laughs> freaking snap over the weekend right yeah there's yeah. a good famous quote on it too that was uh by lincoln and he said like if you give me seven hours to you know chop down a bunch of trees i'll spend the first like six hours sharpening my axe yeah good like, point yeah well, before we wrap up here, do you have any final advice for any aspiring entrepreneurs that are tuning in? And second question is what's next for Kulina? Yeah. Um, so I would say, yeah, like find what, you know, find what really gets you excited. Some of the best advice I ever heard was like, just do what excites you. And it's very much an emotional thing too. It's emotional and it's like, gotta be logical. Um, but obviously that, and I think a lot of founders probably know that, um, really take your time getting to know your co-founders, being super clear about like, you know, who's going to do what. Um, yeah, writing down the responsibilities, role and responsibilities for each co-founder, I think is really key so that you can each stay in your own lane so you can move effectively and faster. Exactly. And in, in tandem, like not letting ego get in the way, right? Because sometimes I've had things where like Sonia stepped into something with like sales or even fundraising, and it's been really helpful. And I like sometimes I catch myself being like, you know, maybe egotistical, like, wait, this is my job. And I actually think that thinking is really, that's really counterproductive. So being open minded, um, but knowing who in the end has like kind of the decision capability to make the decision allows it, like you say, to uh, flow really smoothly. Um, yeah. And then I think, I don't know, like, I think working on product is really fun and super necessary and just spending a lot of time there. Um, uh, I think like one of my friends said something really cool was like copy and paste. Like sometimes as an entrepreneur, we feel like we have to invent everything, but it's like a lot of times, like the best things are like just small improvements and small iterations or like merging of multiple ideas. Um, and, and, and not being like, feeling bad about that, but I think copy and paste is really underrated. Like we, 
really like the Amazon leadership principles. Um, I think their culture is pretty brutal over there. So we don't want to replicate everything, but right. the leadership principles are incredible and you can find them online. And we print yeah. those out, we put them all over the office. We like talk about those when we do our, you know, like shout outs for people doing great work. Um, and that saved us so much time because I know we had like a few of our own little principles we were developing, but this was like way more fleshed out. Um, so yeah, I think copy and paste is awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Principles are great. Interview process, not so much. Probably other things as well. Maybe not, yeah. <laughs> but the principles are on point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so the principles are fun. Um, and so, I'll... what's next? What's next for Kulina? What yeah. are we going to see? Yeah, so right, yeah, yeah. So we're doing we're doing good old you know sushi rolls, poke bowls. We're actually in conversations with some really really big food service partners. Um, we'll be on e-commerce soon. Um, end of September, right? Yeah. Yeah, Great. exactly. We we're going to be looking at retail for next year as well, because we have had a lot of really big retailers ask us for retail SKUs. And so we're pretty excited to present those to them. Um, we are, what else? Yeah. I mean, we'll getting on the road for our series a, um, and then we'll just constantly like improve our products. Like you know, this is just our first version. So mm -hmm. all the raw tuna products you see, oh, we'll have raw salmon products. That'll be fun. So that's going to be a whole nother like uh, product and all the skews within raw salmon. So like cubes, fillets, all the different ones we're looking at there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I know we'll be on like quite a few um, events and maybe even some shows um, in the coming weeks about, or in the coming months, we'll be doing a lot of that. So that's going to be fun. We'll be making a much bigger splash in that way. Great. Um, but yeah, I think the coolest thing, if anybody listens, like, you know, anybody listening to this, um, maybe like find us on online in a couple, couple weeks, order our product and let us know what you think. Cause I think in the end, focusing on the first principle of product is a really healthy mindset and definitely do that. So we'll be able to check you guys out and buy it online. Coolina.com. It's K-U-L-E-A-N-A.co. Yeah, exactly. And it will, it'll be um, also on this website called GTFO. It's vegan. So great. Yeah, awesome. Good. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time today. Um, really appreciate it. And it was fun hearing your story. Yeah, it's great to meet you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.